There are times in Scripture where it really is stunning how much God allows us to know. Remember the occasion when the king of Syria uh, sent a, a great army to surround the city of Dothan and, and capture the prophet Elisha? The prophet's servant was alarmed the next morning when seeing the army and horses and chariots all around the city. And so he said to the prophet, he said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Seeing an invading army. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's amazing. At times, what God allows us to see and to know. I think also of the book of Job, which poses the question, is innocent suffering possible? Or is suffering always tied just to our personal unrighteousness? That's the core question of that familiar book. Is innocent suffering possible? And the answer is a resounding yes, yes, it is. If innocent suffering is not possible, then we've removed the very ground on which the cross of Christ is erected. But as part of that lesson, we're given an amazing piece of knowledge. The curtain between heaven and earth is is pulled back so that we can see what's behind all of Job's trials. Now, that only happens for the reader. Job didn't have any deeper knowledge of his own trials than we have of ours. But we're given that piece of knowledge. We're able to see what's going on and what's happening there. What we learn then in chapters 1 and 2 of that book causes us to root for Job throughout his excruciating exchanges with his frustratingly overconfident friends. We're urging him on to not cave in to the foolishness that he's being fed. Even though we ourselves, lacking that knowledge in our trials, can oftentimes embrace the foolishness. Can lose sight of who God is. Of how he works and how his promises are reliable. There's another reason, though, to look at Job this morning. There's another reason Job comes to my mind. I believe the perspective he gained once God finally spoke in that story, Job 38 through 41, I believe that the perspective he gained once God finally spoke is similar to the perspective that we gain right here in Romans 9 on an equally challenging question. When we see here in verse 20, Sort of the pushback from Paul. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I hear that as quite like the question that God posed first to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's how God began as he finally addressed his suffering servant. 
We can feel very free to critique God and to critique his ways in this world, increasingly free to sit in judgment of him in in what he does. So many among us use the the presence of evil, for instance, in this world to, to question the very existence of God. Not to mention his, his power and his love and his justice. But here, in response to today's text, the temptation isn't so much to question his existence as to critique him because of how he applies his salvation. How he saves Leave aside for the moment the absolutely inconceivable miracle that reconciliation to God is even possible for rebellious sinners like ourselves. Not to mention that this reconciliation is provided fully by this holy and powerful God at his own cost. Lay aside that for a moment. And that it's given to us as a gift... We self-willed rebels can still find fault with him if we believe he has not given us sufficient voice in the process of his salvation. That's a problem. And that's a problem Paul is addressing here. It's a problem he's clarifying and helping people to understand how it is that God does what he does according to God's own word. So God's answer comes to us through Paul in this passage, much as it came directly to Job in Job 38 and following. Paul doesn't factor in human freedom or will at all as he addresses this issue in Romans 9. He is simply holding God accountable to his own word. He's testing God according to what he has said, and he is finding him faithful. He's testing him as he explains how God is presently dealing with his older covenant people even as he begins to extend quite similar promises to his new covenant people. And as we have said, that's where these three chapters are coming from. God made amazing promises to his new covenant people in Romans chapter 8 and even prior. But can we trust them? And if someone to look at Israel and say, "Ah, I'm not sure we can, well, this becomes really important information. How does God go about saving his people? Last week we heard the opening half of this defense. We stopped in the middle in verse 13, but not before we were introduced to the central idea. God decides whom he calls to salvation. Verse 11 in order that his purpose in election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So, in order to protect salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, God grants salvation according to his own will and purpose to whomever he chooses. That's what makes it by grace alone, through faith alone, That's how Paul presents the argument. And one key entailment of this plan is that not all those who were born into Abraham's line, not all ethnic Jews, are designated to receive this promised salvation. 
We'll see that again in this text, though we saw it in verses 8 and following above. So today we finish this opening unit of thought. That unit is verses 6 through 29. We stopped at verse 13 last week, so we're picking up at 14 and going through 29. This opening unit of thought, which defends Paul's thesis that are standing over these three chapters, and that thesis is present right there at the opening of verse 6. It is not as though God's word has failed. That's what he's proving. That's what he's demonstrating. And man, is he digging to the depths in order to defend that thesis. So, God's word has not failed, even though it could look like he's not keeping his promises to Israel. Let's continue on then with his defense and see where it goes from here. Let's continue using his next three questions, sort of. We'll adjust the third one a bit. But for the first two, we're going to ask them directly from the page. And you can see the outline there in your bulletin. That's what we'll follow. Verses 14 through 18, is there injustice on God's part? Then verses 19 to 21, why does God still find fault? And then the one we've adjusted a bit, verses 22 to 29, what if God's power and purpose in salvation are far grander than we realize? That, I believe, is what will take us helpfully through this text this morning. So, is there injustice on God's part? Question one, Paul answers this one right out of the blocks. And a familiar response it is, verse 14, by no means. Sound familiar? It should have 10 times in this letter, and this is number eight of those 10. 10 times in this letter, we've heard questions posed, answered, by no means. There's no way. That's Paul's response. But this is one of those times when the explanation is even more helpful than the answer itself. And it's precisely the answer we'd expect to hear on the heels of verses 6 through 13 as we recognize that not all who are born into Israel are of Israel, but it's the children of the promise. So what we've heard in verses 6 through 13 tell us the answer is going to be by no means to this question, is there injustice on God's part? No, he's not unjust at all. But it's still shocking to us when we read how clearly and directly Paul is willing to say why not, how we know that he remains just. It's stunning to us how efficiently and how pointedly Paul says it here. And he uses God's own words to say it. As he said, he's holding God accountable to what he's already revealed of himself. He's using God's own words when he met Moses on the mountain just before, you remember the situation where he placed Moses in the cleft of the rock as his glory went past and he covered him with his hand? So the answer to our question is, by no means, verse 15, that's where that quote appears. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Wow. There's God's answer. I've got salvation. Don't worry about it. And it's going to be as compassionate and merciful as my own character. And it's going to be as reliable as my own word. Do you trust that? That's going to be our closing question today. Do you trust that? But we've got some ground to cover between now and then. 
Let's continue on. Just in case we may have missed the full implications of what God said to Moses, Paul spells them out for us yet more clearly, giving us a summary bottom line on how we become children of God. Verse 16, it's the theme verse that we selected for the bulletin front this morning because it's the heart of this portion of the argument. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It being our salvation, becoming children of God. And this agrees completely with what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus just a few years later, a passage that might even be a bit more familiar to us. There in Ephesians 2, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. And Paul here says that that is God's very purpose in election to protect that fact. That it's not by works so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God, our salvation. Paul then switches to the arch enemy during the days of Moses as a prime example of the fact that God is sovereign over hardening and judgment as well not just over mercy and salvation. From Exodus 9, Paul again uses God's own words to make his point. They're quoted here in verses 17 and 18. Look at it. For God said to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, you're being used for my purposes. So God raised up Pharaoh, verse 18, to prove that he has mercy on whomever he wills and he also hardens whomever he wills. Wow. The question may be asked, did God cause Pharaoh's hardness or did he just confirm it? Did he just lock him into it after he had already shown that he was hard toward God? Which came first? Did God harden him first? Or did he watch him harden himself and then just enter in and harden him? And, and, and in the telling of the story in Exodus, you really could have that question. It's a, it's a legitimate question. But you know what my answer is to that? I would say it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Either, either lead to the same outcome. If God designs and directs the course of our lives before we're even born, as we saw just earlier in this passage in verses 11 to 13 with with Jacob and Esau, if God designs and directs the course of our lives before we're even born toward the fulfillment of the purpose he had in making us, and by the way, if we had continued on in Ephesians chapter 2 just a moment ago, that's the very next verse where we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. We are saved to fulfill God's purpose. And so he's fulfilling his purpose in our salvation. He's designed us for certain things, and therefore we are lumps of clay being shaped according to the will 
of the designer to do according to the purpose for which he created us. So if God designs and directs the course of our lives before we're even born toward the fulfillment of his purpose in making us, then God was fully aware when making Pharaoh that he was forming someone who would be opposed to him at every turn. Even before Pharaoh had ever done that the first time. So, is he causing it or just confirming it? I don't think it makes a big deal of difference when it's God who's at work doing his will, fulfilling his purpose. The real question is, do we trust God with these decisions? Do we trust him with these decisions? That's the bigger question. We'll answer it as we conclude today, or we'll address it again, and you can take it with you. Do we trust him with this? Do we trust him to operate in this world as though he really is a compassionate and merciful and just God? Do we trust him? As though he really does possess that eternal power and divine nature that we read about back in chapter 1. Do we trust him? Or are we like Jonah, who was not at all happy about the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord? That confession he made while in the belly of the fish. But all this just leads us on to our very next question, a question that Paul anticipates. So question two, why does God still find fault? With what we've said, there's the question, why does God still find fault? Not only is this a fair follow-up question to what we've just heard, but it's confirmation that we're hearing Paul accurately. In other words, if we followed him up to this point, and we're saying, this can't be true, why would God still find fault? Well, Paul's anticipating that question. That tells us we're tracking with him. We've heard him accurately because that would be the next question. What we're talking about here is what we've been intended to hear. So if we've understood him, this is the question we should be asking. Verse 19, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But here now is is when we get an answer like Job's. Verse 20, the one we've already quoted, is the next one we hear. Why do we hear this question now? And I would say it's because this question in verse 19, question 2, crosses a line. This question is no longer seeking understanding about how God dispenses his salvation. This now is beginning to turn in the direction of judgment of how he dispenses it. All the information needed in this line of questions has been given already, and it's an amazing amount of information. I can't believe how much we can see and know at times by God's sovereign purpose. But now Paul's imagined questioner is implicitly indicting God for how he works and therefore for who he is in the raising of this question. The question of whether God is just has already been answered. Verse 14, but the answer just doesn't sound right to some people. Actually, to most of us when we first hear it. So such people want to question further in order to determine whether God's standard of justice really does measure up to their own. 
So the answer here just backs them off a bit. Just like God did with Job when he finally spoke up. It backs them off a bit to remind them of who it is they're questioning here. And of the shaky ground they're stepping onto as they're doing it. This is the God of the universe providing a salvation that exceeds our understanding. And we hear a part of it and want to question how he does it? Shaky ground. Verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Those are good questions. And and they're relatively easy to answer. But the next question, follow-up ones that come after this get progressively harder. Right? The next question that comes helps us see the truly stunning implications that Paul's teaching here. There's one more in this section in verse 21, and then, then the steep climbing starts in the last section. Right? So the follow-up question, we could say, you know, well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The next question, though, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Isn't that done according to the designer's intent? To cut to the chase here for the sake of time, what Paul is actually asking, the question he's posing is, doesn't God have the right to make vessels like Ishmael and Esau whose judgment will not be averted along with the chosen people of God. Does he have the right to do that? And our first thought might be, yes, I suppose he does, but how is that just? We're following Paul's argument. And that leads us straight into the next question, the what-if question. So Paul has backed off the questioner saying, who are you to talk back to God? But then he's continued on to give help in answering the question that he knows will still linger in the minds of the hearer when they hear the word of God at this point. So, third question. What if, now to paraphrase verses 22 to 24 and put them in a single question, what if God's power and purpose in salvation are far grander than we realize. We tend to think of our salvation as being the chief primary thing that God does, and it's an amazing thing that God does. It reflects God's glory uniquely. But it is about God's glory, more so than about our salvation. That's anticipating the answer. Let's walk through this. What if God's power and purpose and salvation are far grander than we realize? Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What if 
Here now is where this passage makes a rather significant contribution to that great philosophical, theological question of why God created the world. Remember at the beginning of last week, we said how many other big questions this passage gets used to answer. Well, here's where we get into this section where it starts to help us answer that question. Why did God even create the world? Given the direction the world has gone since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, why would God have just destroyed this world and created a new one? Why wouldn't he have done that? Why wouldn't he have just destroyed this world and created a new one where his creatures don't sin and rebel against him? Wouldn't that have been the easier thing to do? Seems like it. But here again, we're seeing the difference between us and God. As we mentioned last week, God isn't just a great big one of us. He is fundamentally different than who we are. We are made in his likeness. But we are not God. That might make sense to us. God has a different plan and purpose. Paul is suggesting an answer here to that question as well, even as he addresses God's purpose in election. He's he's giving a hint as to what God is doing in the world. What his purpose was in creating it in the first place and how he's carrying that out. What he's suggesting here. What Paul is suggesting in answer to these questions is that God's character is more fully understood. God's character is more fully experienced. God's character is more fully appreciated by his creatures if they see both his wrath and his mercy. They need both. We need both in order to understand who God is. And fully appreciate his judgment. And fully appreciate his salvation. What he's suggesting is that God's character is more fully experienced, understood, and appreciated by his creatures. If they see both his wrath and his mercy. Both his judgment and his salvation. In tandem with one another. How he both delays and then applies judgment of sin in complement to how he both designs and implements salvation. There's something about the humility and mercy and grace of his salvation that isn't understood without seeing the fierce wrath of his judgment. Just as there's something about his judgment that we'd never be able to grasp without knowing that he's provided such an amazingly gracious way of escape. So what if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction delaying their judgment Delaying the judgment of the wicked almost beyond our ability to understand. And surely to the point where we call out with the souls under the altar in Revelation 6, how long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We long for justice. Justice. 
We long for the holy and righteous wrath to get poured out of God, to get poured out on sin and rebellion. But we can forget about that in this argument unless Paul puts it in front of us and helps us understand the fact that we need to see the two together to understand our God. We can think that his judgment is long overdue, that he's been too patient in pouring it out. But, 2 Peter 3, our Lord is patient, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. Even so, his patience will run its course. It is limited because his judgment will come. And then he will pour out his righteous judgment, displaying his power and vindicating his undiluted holiness. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory. There's his chief end. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has rescued, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24, namely us, whom he has called, not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Wow, there's so much here. Three important observations. First, God's judgment and his salvation work together to display his power and his glory. God's judgment and his salvation work together to display his power and his glory. It's the first observation we need to make from these texts. I'm just going to make three. We could make a dozen. Either his salvation or his judgment, one without the other, is an incomplete picture of who he is. If we lack either one, we will not have a full grasp of his glory. And that, my friends, is the grander purpose we can't miss. Salvation and judgment combine to magnify the glory of God, and that's what he's doing in this world. He's playing out this plan to magnify his glory and draw in his worshipers to enjoy that with him fulfilling them as his image-bearing creatures with that which satisfies them to the depth of their soul, knowing and loving this God of infinite grace and mercy and holiness and justice. So God's judgment and his salvation work together to display his power and his glory. Second, God has always intended for salvation to go to the Gentiles as well, not only to Jews. He made that clear from the very beginning in his promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, just before the text we read earlier this morning. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's what these quotes from Hosea here in verses 25 and 26 are affirming. Those who are not my people will be called my people. There's, there's our salvation, Gentiles. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there you will be called the sons of God. Namely, there in the very presence of God himself, affirmed as his children, adopted sons, as we already saw back in chapter 8. 
So that's second. God has always intended for salvation to go to the Gentiles as well, not only to the Jews. Third, and more important here to this point that Paul is actually making in these three chapters, it was never the case that every single Israelite born in the line of Abraham or even born in the line of Isaac or Jacob would be saved. It was never the case that every single Israelite born in the line of Abraham would be saved. That's what these quotes from Isaiah are affirming in verses 27 to 29. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Translated, if God hadn't saved some among us, none would have been saved at all. Not one. We'd have been as desolate as Sodom and Gomorrah under the judgment of God. So what is our takeaway from all this? What is our takeaway this morning? Three more things to note that I think would be helpful. Most central and therefore most important, answer the question. God's promises to Israel have not failed. God's promises to Israel have not failed. That's the main point Paul is making in this chapter. Even though he chose them to be the ones through whom he would make the promise of salvation, even though he chose them to be the ones through whom he would deliver the law, proving the need for salvation, even though he chose them to be the ones through whom he would provide Messiah, accomplishing salvation, it was never his purpose to save every single Israelite. And you can see that in verse 27. And it was always his purpose, always his purpose, to save some from every tribe and language and people and nation. Just as we saw in the book of Revelation some months ago. That's first. God's promises to Israel have not failed. Second, salvation is fully from the Lord. Salvation is fully from the Lord it is a gift given by his grace completely apart from anything we do or don't do. His purpose in election is to keep our salvation from being any sort of reward for any sort of good works. But also, without his sovereign granting of salvation to those he's chosen... Again, no one at all would have believed, not one. That's where Romans started. Third, God's wrath poured out in judgment magnifies his power and glory as he saves. God's wrath poured out in judgment magnifies his power and glory as he saves. We can see how that could be true, but I cannot explain to you exactly how it works. Not to your satisfaction, and in all honesty, not even to mine. But that is what we learn about God here in this text. So we have to finish with those few questions we've been mentioning from the beginning. Do you trust God to be just 
in the way that he dispenses his salvation? Do you trust him with that? Given that he's provided salvation at all, do you trust that he'll handle it well? That he'll do it right? That he'll dispense it appropriately? Do you trust him? Do you trust that he's telling you the truth in these verses where he describes how he does it? And why he does it that way? Do you trust him as best you can understand? And do you trust him when he puts a stop to your questions? Just as he does right here in verse 20. Do you trust him? Today's passage presents challenging teaching. We've granted that from the start, but praise God that he's purposed to tell us about this. Amen? Aren't you glad Romans 9 is in the scriptures? And praise God again for the book of Job. The time when this chapter is the hardest is when we have lost a loved one or perhaps are about to lose a loved one whom we long for God to save and we're just not sure whether he's going to do it. That's hard. It's difficult. And we're just not sure we can trust him with their lives. Do you know that feeling? Maybe it's not a lost loved one. Maybe it's something else where you just aren't sure you can trust God with the salvation of souls. Job is our example here as well. Do you remember the final words of his answer back to God after God had asked his questions? Job 42, verses 5 and 6. Job says, I had heard about you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job is saying, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke without knowledge. I forgot how much bigger God is than us. I forgot that he's God. And he does it as he wills. I forget that he's just and that he's trustworthy. And despite my circumstances, he's good. He's provided a way of escape. Never having needed to do so, except that he has purposed not only to display his glory, but to share it with the objects of his mercy. Job trusted God in the end. Remember that, especially when you review the story and recognize that he lost 10 children in this trial. Is God worthy of your trust? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is unsettling to us when we come up against the limits of our own humanity. 
And it remains unsettling even when we have been brought to that place in the presence of a God whom we know to be good and righteous and holy and just. But Father, it just doesn't benefit us not to tell ourselves the truth at such times and not to let the truth of such matters press us once again into the arms of our God, into the arms of our Savior, into the ministry of your Spirit who causes your word to come alive. And as we encounter who you are and how you work in these stunningly massive questions that Paul is addressing, I pray that we would go away with one thought that our God is trustworthy to the uttermost and that we would then give praise to you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf that has enabled us to understand that, to appreciate it, and to enter into the fullness of what you have intended that to mean in our lives. Father, I pray that the fullness of that meaning would descend upon us as the body of believers in the wake of this exposition of your word, but now, according to this ritual of remembrance that you've given us for that very purpose, to hold on to the truth of who you are and to the reliability of your salvation until it is fully and finally delivered. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.